In the name of God who ever gathers us together, amen. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. So I, I listen to a lot of podcasts, and uh, one of my longtime favorites is On Being with Krista Tippett. I tell people that's who I want to be when I grow up. Um, and it's this conversation that she has uh, at the intersection of real life and religion or, or spirituality. And so she talks to musicians and poets and scientists and anthropologists and priests and rabbis. And through their conversation, um, they, they get to sort of the humanness and the mundane and of life, and, and they see the holy in it. I, I think that's what I like. But she begins every conversation by, by asking everyone the same question. Um, tell me the, re the religious or spiritual background of your childhood. I love this. Because everyone has a story to tell. Um, e even those who are born in purely secular homes have a story to tell. So the first interview I heard was with an anthropologist who grew up in a very secular home, uh, but in a town that was very religious. And by the time she was old enough to know to ask to go to Sunday school, um, her father said, well, we'll take you on our way to play tennis, but you need to find a ride home. And so she went once once. And she distinctly remembers um, the year that everyone in her class was confirmed or welcomed into their religious communities, and she wasn't. And what struck me about that was that she said that as an adult, she had no longing for religious community, but she spent her life researching love and connectedness and community. And then there's the great poet Mary Oliver, the, the great poet of our day. She died not too long ago. And she described how she grew up um, in church. And she uh, loved religion. She loved the idea of Jesus far more than her peers. But she decided not to be confirmed because she didn't understand resurrection. And yet she, she spent her whole life after this very dark, abusive childhood writing poetry about the resurrected life. And you know, I bet if we went around this room, every one of us has a story of how we got here, why we were in church. I bet we all have experiences that shaped us, the people who shaped us. You know, my parents actually left my childhood church when I was 11 years old, and they had been very active. Uh, they they um, led the youth group. I don't know who led them, but they led the youth group. Um, my mother sang in the choir. She spanked me almost every Sunday because I would make faces at her in the choir, and then she would laugh, and that embarrassed her. Um, it's amazing that I'm a priest. And... Um, she served on what you would call the vestry, kind of, of the church. And one week, after they had this three-hour meeting, this just knock-down, drag-out meeting, over which account they would buy a $2 spark plug for the lawnmower. And at the end of, um, 
At the, at the end of it, she finally stood up and said, I'll buy it. Uh, I don't think that's all she said. Um, and she proceeded to tell them how ridiculous they were, and she never really went back to that church. And so the interesting thing is that it wasn't that the church didn't have money, okay? The church had a lot of money, but it was that some of the leaders of that church lived with this mentality of scarcity, and that scarcity had, had caused them to, to form a tight grip. Um, and not just about money, right? But, but this tight grip on everything. And they made sure that their projects were funded and their ideas were funded even though they may not work or they were failing and they were old. They would never cut them, right? And heaven forbid they open the church doors to the city. And every step of the way, um, there were these other kind and generous souls in that church fighting tooth and nail for the church to open up, to spend some money on new ideas, and to share their space with the outside community. By the time I went to college, um, that church had dwindled. It was a thriving church. They, they had dwindled um, to about 10 or 8 people on a Sunday morning. Um, they were about to die, but they had a, a lot of money, um, so they didn't have to close the doors, but they didn't have the people. And then something happened. The two to three people with that mentality of scarcity who had had this grip on the church, they died because we all die. Things don't stay exactly as they are right now. Things change, and things changed. And so the church decided to let go of that mentality of scarcity, and, and they, wanted, they decided, okay, we're gonna live into a generous spirit. And so they bought some new equipment for music, even though there was no one there to play it yet. And um, they opened the doors for, this, for the city to come in and use the space during the week, all while maintaining their savings, okay? And the church grew, and it grew, and it grew. The last few weeks, we've heard passages from the second letter of Timothy, and the letter presents itself as a, as a farewell from Paul to Timothy. Now, Timothy was one of Paul's pupils. He, was, uh, he followed Paul around, and it's likely that Timothy and Paul had established this church in, in modern-day Turkey, where Timothy is. And so um, this church, this letter is written to Timothy because it seems that he's having some trouble in his community, and, and he's having trouble with rival teachers. And so Paul, or the author, we don't know who it is, writes and, and, and says, remember the faith that's been imparted to you. You see, if you remember a few weeks ago, actually, this is my favorite, okay, one of my favorite verses of Scripture. Um, but the, the, the beginning of the letter says, to Timothy, my beloved child, I'm reminded of your sincere faith a faith first lived into you by your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. I love that. He says, and that's the faith that's still in you. 
And so today we get this reassertion to Timothy um, to persevere and, and fall back on that faith that's been taught to him. You see, it seems that Timothy's father was most likely Greek or Gentile. And so his grandmother and his mother were, were, it seems, devout Jews who decided to follow Paul. And Timothy's faith um, came from what he learned at home, from that relationship with Eunice and Lois, not from an institution or a temple or rabbis. And so the author is reminding Timothy during this difficult time, remember that imparted faith that lived knowledge that they gave you. And think of all the women and men who, who've lived the faith into you, Timothy, through their word and their actions. And I love this explanation of faith, this, this imparted faith. You know, um, for a long time, when I heard the word stewardship, um, my mind went to that $2 spark plug for that lawnmower. And, and I got a knot in my gut and my ears shut down. And it wasn't until I started reading this theologian who said, you know, when we talk about money in the church, our mind automatically goes to 10%, the, the, the tie. That, that's where we go. But what about the other 90%, he asked? Because really, it, it's about your whole life, okay? And so I started to reevaluate that $2 spark plug, and, <clears throat> and it dawned on me one day that... True stewardship is about balance. Um, it's balancing what we save and what we spend and what we share. It's a balance. Because if, if we only save, then we isolate ourselves. And if we only spend, then we risk losing everything. And if we only share, then we're never fed. And until those three, three things are in balance, we will never grow. And this understanding of, of stewardship, it's not just about the church. It's about us. And it's not just about balancing money, but about, but, but about balancing our time and um, our work and our talents and our relationships. I mean, even in something as simple as love, right? If you don't risk your heart to love, um, if you save it just for yourself, then you never use it. Watching that little church hoard money, <clears throat> hoard their things, and seeing them fight about it and then die, and then being reborn and grow into new life, I witnessed without really knowing it the importance of the balance of stewardship. You know, and I think back to those people of faith in that church who inherently knew this, the, the people saying we should be generous. And I, and I still, I could picture them, their names, Lamar and Janie and Patricia and Jemai and Sissy and Lenora. You see, these were the Loises and Eunices of my life. 
They imparted the faith into me. They imparted stewardship to me. The idea that, that we grow when, when, when we have this, this balance, this balance in our, in our lives of saving and, and spending and sharing. And the thing is, when I think back on these Loises and Eunices of my life, I can't actually help but be overwhelmed. Because I realize that, that we are called to be Loises and Eunices in the lives of others. You see, our faith and our actions and our beliefs are imparted to others. I mean, that's what we agree to when we baptize people. We agree to walk with them on the journey of faith. We agree that we are going to shape the religious and spiritual background of others. Just as our background has been shaped. And because of that, our stewardship matters. The question then for us as a church and our question as individuals, are, are we balanced? Are we balanced in what we share and save and spend? Are we balanced in our stewardship?